Welcome to the Better Angels Podcast, a new way of talking politics. I'm Kieran O'Connor. My illustrious co-host, John Wood Jr., is out this week, so I took this one solo. My guest today was Ezra Klein, the founder and editor-at-large at Vox Media and the host of the Ezra Klein podcast. You've probably seen him on Twitter. He's a writer, a thinker. He's been in the game for a long time. Today, we had a wide-ranging conversation. We talked about the evolution of our public conversation from the more constructive dialogue of the blog days to the current environment on Twitter. We talked about Vox. We talked about editorial polarization in the media. We talked about viewpoint diversity on college campuses. And ultimately, we talked about the potential of movements like Better Angels. Ezra had some pessimism. He certainly supports what we're doing, and he tried to hold my feet to the fire. But ultimately, I tried to make the case for the value of Better Angels, insofar as it's making a positive difference in people's lives And it's starting a movement that could one day shift our politics from Main Street to the Beltway. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. If you have any thoughts or feedback or suggestions for future guests, please shoot us an email at media at better-angels.org. I give you Ezra Klein. Ezra Klein, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I want to start a little bit talking about the evolution of our public conversation over the past 15 years in terms of how we talk about politics and more, great, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, it's been a pleasure to watch. Um, and obviously that also just filters down, you know, more fundamentally in terms of how we relate to one another as human beings. And so I think, you know, as someone who cut your teeth blogging for the American prospect and the Washington post, and I, I have fond memories of that time, uh, perhaps I romanticize it a little bit, but, you know, I remember reading you and um, Andrew Sullivan at The Atlantic, and there just seemed to be this vibe of people, you know, chewing on the news of the day, you know, occasionally arguing and squabbling, of course, but seeming to generally engage issues in good faith and wanting to engage in this constructive public dialogue across the divide. And obviously, now we're in a very different place um, where people are trolling each other, uh, you know, dunking is the term du jour, but people seem to really want to humiliate one another. And there's this, you know, pressure with tribalism where people feel like even engaging with the opposing perspective is somehow akin to surrendering your own. And so I just wanted to get your thoughts as someone who's you know, existed both on the elite level of a opinion maker and also someone who just exists in the world and talks about politics with friends and family and coworkers. How have you absorbed this evolution or devolution, you could say, in the public conversation? And, and where do you think we can go from here, obviously, as we're moving into another uh, heated electoral contest? So there's a lot there. Yes. <laughs> so a couple of thoughts. So one, it is definitely true that the only good music was made um, when I was a teenager in the 90s. And the only good period in American political discourse was in my 20s when I was in the blogosphere. Who were your and favorite I, uh, artists back in the day? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to discredit myself in plenty of ways during this conversation. I can't. <laughs> Fair enough. But I will. I will like straightforwardly defend 1994 as the greatest year for music. Yes. Um, that said, uh, I think there are a couple things here that are 
all real. On the one hand, let me tell you something that as a blogger, mm-hmm. we were not greeted with roses and chocolates. Right. Uh, I remember talking to, when I went to the Washington Post, talking to uh, Washington Post op-ed columnists who were angry at me years later for how uncivilly they felt that I treated them. Mm. Of the bloggers, I think I was one of the more civil bloggers. But the blogosphere was rough and tumble compared to what had come before it. It was unedited. It was somebody's actual feeling. It was full of fisking, right? That was Andrew Sullivan's term for taking somebody's argument paragraph by paragraph right. and often inter- and, and interserting in between what could be a rebuttal or could be a brutal dunking on. Mm. Um, and like fisking is a guy's name, Robert Fisk. So I don't think it's super, uh, <laughs> it's not super civil to, to name destroying an argument after somebody whose argument <laughs> you feel you've destroyed. So I want to be a little careful with how much we, we, we lionize that time as much as I loved that time. Mm. That said, to lionize that time now, one of the things that was fundamental about the blogosphere was it was an economy based on linking. The way that you engaged, the way that you got new readers was that you linked to people and they linked back to you. So to use Andrew as the example, Andrew and I argued all the time. I did a podcast recently with Andrew and I started out by saying like, you and I have been fighting on and off for on the internet for 15 years now. It's like one of my oldest and favorite hobbies. But when we did that, Andrew would link to me and I would link to Andrew and we'd go back and forth and people would read back and forth and, and maybe we'd end up sharing even readership. In the blogosphere, particularly in its earlier period when it was smaller, you wrote something with the expectation that the person you were writing about was going to read you and was going to respond mm. and that your audience might see both. And that's a very different kind of engagement than what I see in a lot of social media, which is that you are writing something for your community um, and it will go viral among your community. It will get retweeted or, you know, clapped or whatever reposted. And the best thing that you can possibly do is, is appeal to your site. And you don't really assume that the other person is going to read you much as that their audience is going to read you. I constantly see people, uh, what is it? Twitter quoting, right? They, right. they screen grab a Twitter, um, a tweet. I sound like I'm a hundred years old. They screen grab a tweet instead of actually quoting the tweet. There's not a, an authentic engagement. Um, and I think that's worse. I mean, also just look like Twitter is a place where you're collapsing out nuance from the discussion. You're making everything really short and small. You're putting it on social feedback. It just changes the, the, the dynamic in pretty profound ways. So look, I don't think the past was perfect. I actually, I don't think that civility is often the issue, but I do think that having an economy of promotion based around links um, rather than one based around social uh, applause is just a healthier thing. Totally. And I mean, you mentioned the question of civility, which I think is important because there's a lot of organizations that almost, you know, fetishize civility and say, why can't we, you know, go back to a time when everyone was was more polite? And I think it's important to distinguish that from, you know, the spirit of competition, which is important in the marketplace of ideas. And that's something we try to distinguish at Better Angels. It's sort of a, a fine line, but it's like you can passionately advocate for your position. You don't need to moderate. You don't need to paper over disagreements. But you're not there sort of going into the conversation with a fundamental view that the other side is already irredeemable and you're just there to make them look bad. And so in thinking about how we got to this place, you know, I've heard you talk about cable news and the sort of inherently conflictual frame that they bring to the the public conversation. And, you know, Fox News in particular, liberals would say, I think conservatives would talk about MSNBC and perhaps even Vox. Um But where do you think that comes from on both the right and the left? In particular, do you think there are 
distinct ways in which the left has contributed to political polarization, both online and off? Yeah, so a couple things there. Um, one thing that I think is really important to front load in any discussion of polarization is what we actually mean by polarization. And what, what are we talking about? There, there are different phenomena people can be talking about there. And the thing that I think is important in this conversation and the question you just asked is we're in what is now a 50 or 60 year trend mm. of the two broad political coalitions sorting by all kinds of identity and ideological dimensions. So compared to 1950 or 1960 or 1970, race and religiosity and geography and ideology um, and a lot of different kinds of cultural preferences are all now collapsed into the red and blue divide, the left and right divide in a, a, a way that wasn't as true. So what that's done is make these political identities much stronger in us. But, and this is the important part, it's also made the depth of that divide more rational. Mm. Before 1980, there was no abortion platform in the Republican Party uh, platform. There's no, I'm sorry, no, I'm sorry. Before 1980, there was no abortion plank in the Republican Party platform. Pro-life and pro-choice was not one of the dividing lines between the political parties. Um, even if you go back to the early 90s, the difference in the political parties' views of the world in the, the demographics of their internal coalitions, they weren't nearly as far separated as they are today. And so one of the reasons you're seeing that increase in demonization, that increase in fear, that increase in the heat of the conflict is it is partially a rational response to the other side becoming legitimately more threatening to your view and to your group's view of the good life. Like mm. if like Donald Trump and, and Barack Obama in some ways are, are such perfect foils for each other. I mean, here you have, you know, the first African-American president running on this platform of change. You should be hopeful about change, right? He literally ties the words hope and change together. And then you get this backlash white uh, president pulling in the word again, right? Like we're right. great we're back to again. There are very profoundly different ideas of what kind of country we should be. And so the, a lot more of our, a, a lot more of what has happened in the media, in our conversations, in our political debate has to do with the increasing differences between the coalitions than, than we often give it credit for. And then you layer on top of that, something we've been talking a little bit around here, which is technological change in the media itself. Um, again, if you're comparing back to 1990, like 1990 is not that long ago. I sort of remember 1990. I certainly remember 1994 and 1996. Um, That's my birth year. Right. You, sorry, your birth year is 96? 90. 90. I remember Dude, 96, though. People, people are making me feel young, uh, old now. It's terrible. I remember when I was a person who's like, my birth year is 84. And everybody's like, oh, like, well, fuck you. You're young gun. Young. Right. Uh, now I'm getting old. Um, but... It's amazing to think that like 96 is before the rise of cable news, but before the rise of the internet, before the rise of blogs, of Twitter, of Facebook. So something that happens is that alongside this polarization, you have this profusion of what's called choice-based media. And the thing that happens when you can choose your media is on the one hand, political media is chosen by people who are interested in politics and people who are interested in politics are very highly polarized, but political media is unchosen 
by people who are not interested in politics. So before, um, a lot of people who consume some political media, even though they don't care about politics because that's what's on television, that's what's in the newspaper. Now they're watching MTV, the home, the, the home shopping network, Game of Thrones on HBO. They're reading blogs about all kinds of other things. There's not a bad thing about them. There's no law that you have to be into political media. But it, it really changes that. So you combine those two things together and you get the kind of conversation that, that, that you're pointing out here. Um, that's a kind of big picture piece. I can take a breath or I can talk about if the left has a distinct role in that. Yeah, I guess just the, the distinction between right and left in terms of how they've both reacted to it and, and contributed to it, I'd be interested in getting your take on. So I think there are a lot of commonalities between how not just left and right, but basically everybody is reacting to this. I think of the fundamental difference between the left and the right as um, about how their institutions reacted to polarization. So as you said, there has been a rise in left of center media and right of center media. There's Fox News and there's MSNBC. And, you know, you can name 50 others like that, as you said, potentially including Fox. One of the things that is distinct about the left from the right, though, is if you ask them what kind of media they trust. Uh, Pew did a poll on this, and this was just back in 20, I want to say it's 2016, but it's possible it's 2017. Um, uh, or, or just somewhere around there, but it's in, it's in the book I'm writing. So I just had to be looking through this and they gave people, um, 36 different media outlets and asked them, you know, did they trust it or did they not? And that included things like the New York times and the wall street journal and the economist. It included things like the Sean Hannity show and Rush Limbaugh, um, and Ed Schultz, who was back then on MSNBC and Rachel Maddow. It included magazines like the economist and Newsweek and time. And what they found was on the left, people, I'm, I'm going to get this number wrong from memory, so I'll, I'll fudge it up a little bit. The left trusted something like 26 of the 30-some media outlets. They trusted every media outlet on the left, every media outlet that you would think of as mainstream, so the New York Times, um, the, the Washington Post, Time. And they also trusted some of the high-reputation center-right outlets, so the Wall Street Journal, um, which is a very far-right editorial page, um, uh, The Economist, which is, I would say, like a center-right British kind of market-oriented um, organization. But the right itself, people who are on the right, who are you know what are called engaged conservatives, they only trusted six of the 30-some outlets. So they trusted Fox News. They trusted... Um, you know, I, I don't want to try to do this from memory, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, but they only right. trusted things that were extremely explicitly conservative. And so something that to me is one of the great distinctions between the left and the right is the left has remained quite woven in to, you know, what one might call like the mainstream of this stuff, academia, mainstream journalism. And, and the right has developed much more distinct ecosystems. And one of the mysteries to me is why the right didn't develop more of its own kind of centrist ecosystem, its own mainstream ecosystem. So more Wall Street journals, fewer Fox News and, and, and Breitbart's. So I think that's one of the things that is distinct. Um, you know, I think the thing that people will say about the left is that it has driven an identity-oriented polarization that perhaps the right has been more resistant to. I don't think that I really buy that in this respect. I think that you've had, first, um, a much more explicit form of white identity politics come up on the right. And second, I think that you've seen a... Um, a huge amount of our political debate right now just has to do with demographic change in this country. So a lot of what we call identity politics is us is different demographic groups developing enough power to be heard in politics. That looks a lot more like identity is playing a colliding role, but it's just more identities have the power to, to actually wrench the political system in their direction. I don't think that's something I really blame the left for. Um, but I think it is something, I, in fact, I think it's a good thing in general, but I think it is certainly part of our polarization 
And then I would say that there is parts of the left that have, you know, and I think you would associate this with college campuses and, and so on. I think it's an overblown problem, but a, a dislike of discourse, a, um, a, a willingness to just sort of say, there are opinions that were fine. I, I shouldn't say fine. There are opinions that people held in a very mainstream way a couple of years ago. And now those opinions are verboten. You should not be allowed to have them. And we're not going to do the work of talking you out of them. But in general, I think that tendency is just not that widespread. So I don't worry about it that much. And so do you think, I mean, I think a lot of conservatives would say that the the publications that you listed as mainstream and the academy in general they would argue have become bastions of liberalism. Mm -hmm. And what would be your response to that over the past two years, looking at publications like the New York Times and the Washington Post and campus culture, would you say that it has begun to slant to the left? Because, you know, we work with a lot of college campuses and I've had a lot of conservative students come up and say, you know, I literally think I will get a worse grade on this paper unless I sort of soften my conservative take. And I have people who talk about reading the New York Times, and even if they respect sort of the investigative reporting and the standards, in terms of the story selection and the elevation of news analysis, you know, to the front page of the website, Mm -hmm. they see it really reinforcing this liberal view of the world, which is obviously colored by Trump. And most of the journalists likely who work for those publications personally are probably very anti-Trump, even if they're trying to keep their biases in check. Have you noticed that in the mainstream media and have you seen it at Vox as well? Because I know the original editorial mission at Vox was very much about explaining the news and helping people understand the news. But I know putting on my conservative hats or my conservative friends would say that Vox has become more partisan over the past two years. And maybe it's not the same as Fox News, but how do you see that transition? Do you think it's overblown or do you think there's several kernels of truth there? So happy to do this. Um, which order would you like me to go in? Yeah, sorry. That was a jumbled question. I guess <laughs> first I'd ask about the the mainstream media and Vox, and then we can dive a little bit into the sure. campus culture because I think they're separate, separate issues. So let me separate out the New York Times and the Washington Post and, and Vox, right? I mm-hmm. think these are two different questions and, I'm in, and I'll, I'll take them separately. So on on the like the the big legacy media players, I don't think there's any doubt the media has become more analytical. Uh, it's become... I don't quite want to say opinionated. I don't love the term for a variety of reasons, but I think that it's clear what side people are on. Um, I don't think conservatives who say that the mainstream media is liberally biased are wrong. Um, I don't think it is liberally biased in the way people often give it credit for being. So for instance, I don't think the New York Times is biased in favor of single payer health care. Um, but I do think they're biased in favor, you know, biased um, in favor of gay marriage or immigrate, or I think they, they believe immigrants are good, um, you know, there is a, what I would almost call more of a cosmopolitan bias than a liberal bias, or certain, certainly more of a cosmopolitan bias and a leftist bias. Hmm. The New York Times is not biased towards Bernie Sanders and against Marco Rubio. Right. But it is biased. Um, biased is such a tricky word here. But it does. it is written by people for whom Donald Trump's view of the world is quite an affront. Right? It is willing to say, for instance, that if you are willing at least to believe that if you say that a judge should not be able to rule on you because he is of Mexican heritage, despite being born in the U.S., that you're saying something racist. One of the difficult things in this is you can think about polar polarization or balance or whatever word you want to use for what we're talking about as a positioning device, or you can think about it as um, 
a, a lens you want to bring to, to reality. So I'll give you an example here. Um, Norm Ornstein and Thomas Mann are two congressional scholars who were really known for their balance. Um, Ornstein was at the American Enterprise Institute, which was a center-right organization, or actually just a right organization. And um, uh, you've had Arthur Brooks here before. He's a, the, the president of AI. Um, and Thomas Mann is at Brookings, which is considered left of center. And they always did their work together. They were the, the two leading scholars. And then in, I think it's 2011 or 2012, they published a, a book called It's Even Worse Than It Looks. And, and they say that, look, we've been doing this for 20, 30 years. And the Republican Party has gone off the rails. The Republican, like both the Democrats and Republicans have gone um, to their respective sides, but Republicans have become something different. They're much more contemptuous of compromise. They're willing to do things like breach the debt ceiling. Like they've become a dangerous, dysfunctional party in a way the Democrats haven't. And so here's the question, right, in this space. Is what happened that they became imbalanced? Did they become polarized? Or did the world change? And they had to say what had happened, like that they had been in one place. They were people who were fair-minded. And as the world changed, they had to say, like, this has changed. Mm. This is a pretty hard thing in the Trump era. Um, when you talk about the Times or the Post or, for that matter, Vox, uh, you know, to, to say the Vox has become more partisan in the past years, I actually don't think we have become more partisan in the past two years. In some ways, I think we've been um, better at, uh, at, at thinking about how to be broad-minded in that period. That said, we are uh, an organization that's always had the view, and I've always had the view in my own work, that reality is not even-handed. There are things that are true about the world and things that are not true in the world. And my view is that what I should do is have an open and curious process. I speak to more Republicans than Democrats in my own reporting, that I should do my best to understand the issues, and then I should be transparent in where I come down. It was not hard for me to cover Mitt Romney in a way that, you know, a lot of, I got a lot of like compliments from people on the right for how I covered Romney. I didn't agree with his tax plan, which I think didn't add up, but I found a lot to, that was worthy of admiration in Mitt Romney. And it wasn't hard for me to cover him in a way that say the Romney campaign would read. I do not think that is true about Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump is objectively a worse person than Mitt Romney. I think that the way he acts as president is appalling. And what is crazier about the situation we're all in is that if you talk to Donald Trump's staff, which I do, they think that as well. And, you know, go look, like read Fire and Fury. Listen to what they say when they leave his employ. Right. And so now there's a question. If you go and cover the Trump administration as something that is aberrant and problematic, are you showing that you have become more polarized, that you've become more partisan, that you've lost your bearings? Or are you somebody fair-minded who is reporting with his own staff, talking to Republicans in the House, and you are saying that on the left and on the right, what people tell you is, this is not good. It's not okay. It's a problem. One of the hard things for all of us in media who like to cultivate an image of ourselves as fair-minded is Donald Trump has made it harder to cultivate that image by being somebody who it is frankly harder to cover positively. I don't think that if Marco Rubio had won the election, we'd be having this conversation about the New York Times. Um, I think that if Marco Rubio had won the election, the New York Times would have been happy to cover him in you know, the way they've covered lots of Republican presidents before. But the problem of Donald Trump is a real one. Um, and what's even worse is that I'm not sure it's the last time we're going to face it. The kind of polarization we're seeing might lead to more things like Donald Trump in the future. So I think this is a challenge for organizations, all of us, and it's true for us in the media, but it's also true for you guys at Better Angels. What do you do when reality changes underneath your feet? What do you do when the actual situation of left and right becomes unbalanced? What do you do when the right elects somebody who just should not be president? And if you talk to 
I'd say two out of five at this point, and originally it was four out of five Republican members of the House, they will tell you that off the record. Like, what should the coverage look like under that scenario? That's the thing that everybody's trying to deal with, um, but it's not an easy thing to deal with. And honestly, I don't know that we have a good answer for it. I don't know that our answer has been the right one, but it also can't be that we pretend everything is normal. Right. Yeah, that's well put. And so on college campuses, do you think there's a need to emphasize and support viewpoint diversity? What does emphasize and support it mean? Well, so I was up at Berkeley um, three weeks ago giving a talk, and the professor there was saying, you know, I can't publicize these because we're worried we're going to get shouted down. And then I went to a community college earlier this week in Oregon in a, a purple district, and there they, you know, very much try to bring speakers from both sides of the aisle, and they really try to emphasize viewpoint diversity. And so I think you hear people on the left sometimes say the the problem is overblown, and then you hear people on the right say that they think, like I said, they feel like they have to keep their views to themselves mm-hmm. or they feel like they'll so be wait, excluded. You went, to, you went to UC Berkeley mm-hmm. and a professor at UC Berkeley told you he couldn't publicize your speech because he was worried it would get shouted down. Yes. And he said it wouldn't be students, but he said essentially outside people look for political speeches and they can come and disrupt the class. And I mean, I don't think he thought that necessarily that was going to happen, but essentially as a you know precautionary measure, uh, which was sort of astounding to me because all the students we talked to were very warm and yeah. receptive to our message. So and- this is so like if that is happening. So I'm in Oakland, right? I go to I'm at Berkeley all the time. Actually, I do a lot of my podcast taping out of Berkeley. If that is happening, then, yeah, that is a crazy situation. Look, I do a lot of speaking on college campuses. It's basically the only kind of speaking I will do. Um, I love talking to students. And. I do a lot of that speaking. Um, I'll do it uh, paired up sometimes with people who are more on the right. But I always ask them about this. Hmm. And every lecture series I do has a lot of people on the right come through it. Like every single one that has me come has people on the right who are coming to. Um, and so I just don't know. Like I look at the information on this and the data on this and I talk to the kids And, you know, with the exception of a few people who are incredibly specifically provocative, like your Milo Yiannopoulos, people like that, I find a lot of openness to viewpoint diversity. Look, like college campuses are left-leaning. They always have been. Young people are very left-leaning. Like it's worth noting this. Young people are a lot further to the left than the rest of the population. So like one reason college campuses feel like they're on the left is because they literally are. Um, And then I think it's a job and, you know, we can sort of talk about theories and reasons this might be, but, you know, faculty leans left. When I was at Santa Cruz, um, which is a very left campus, I was more to the right than a lot of people there. And that caused tension for me. So I'm I'm sympathetic to that. Um, I just don't know objectively what the size of the problem is here. The story you're telling me surprises me because it doesn't accord with anything I have seen. Um, and I've seen people who are a hell of a lot more uh, polarizing than better angles <laughs> on campuses. And then when you say that, the, well, okay, the professor says it really wasn't any students who he was thinking about. And so I just don't know how to take a story like that. Right. But um, in general, like, I think that, yes, like college kids should be hearing people on all sides of debates. Um, I don't think you should be so open-minded your head falls out, right? I don't think you should be having Richard Spencer come and do a college tour. Right. But like the question of should you be like listening to, I don't know, Ross Douthit or something? Of course you should be. Uh, and so 
it really depends on like what is the literal situation people are um, dealing with. And what I tend to find is that there is an incredibly large cottage industry on the right about finding isolated weird things that happen on campuses that most people never think about right. and blowing them up some kind of generalized like hysteria over campus political correctness. And then like I go around and talk to campuses or I go like talk to people who actually study this and they say, no, like in general, campuses are full of right-wing speakers and they're full of kids of all kinds. And for the most part, you know, there's nowhere in society that's perfect and colleges are more extreme places than anywhere else because they're hothouses of like young people with raging hormones. But in general, <laughs> it's all going pretty well. We're not having violence in the streets of them and we're not having that much censorship any, uh, uh, in them at all. And so I don't know, it, it really depends here what you think the, the actual reality of the situation is. And I find that sometimes hard to parse. Totally. I mean, I, I agree. If you watch Fox News, the word Berkeley has become you know synonymous yeah. with censorship. And um, but do you think the how, how do you see the influence of call out culture on the left and sort of how that's bleeding into um, the mainstream way that people on the left engage with people on the right for fear of upsetting folks on the left who talk about deplatforming and saying that you are giving a seat at the table who people, you know, espouse views of bigotry. Where do you see that coming down? I don't, I don't know what to say about this. Sometimes I'm, I guess on the left, right. I think people, people view me that way. I talk to people on the right all the time. Um, like all that, like my podcast, uh, you know, like it's an important thing to me that part of what happens on it is I'm constantly talking to people who are to my right as I am to people who are on my left and just to people who are orthogonal to me and, and know different things. And I don't, not only do I not find there's some kind of call out culture or people trying to shut me down or cancel me for having these conversations, but I find I have a big audience and people are into it. Um, and my reporter, Jane Coaston, uh, who's excellent, is constantly talking to people on the right and reporting on them and thinking about them and discussing things with them. And like, she has a great audience and people adore her work. This whole thing about call culture, I don't want to tell you it's not there because obviously it's somewhere, right? It's like there's call out culture in YouTube and like people on Twitter, but is it really changing something in media? Is it really changing who people are allowed to talk to? Or is it just that, as has always been the case, there's controversy around our work and it's important to be able to, to separate signal from noise? I honestly don't know the answer to that. I'm not, you know, like uh, Sean Illing, one of my reporters, just did an interview with Ben Shapiro. Um, and it's an interview. It's a tough interview. And I think, um, you know, Sean did a really nice job pointing out some of the, the weak points of Ben's book. And Sean got a lot of hosannas from the left. And not only that, but he got like a lot of appreciation from Ben Shapiro and people on the right because it was like a good, tough, respectful interview. And so I'm just, I am not finding this world of liberals who are refusing to have engagement with anybody to their right. I'm not finding this world of Twitter mobs that is able to shut down people on the left for engaging on the right. And that isn't to say that people don't have different views on this. I know they do. Um, and I hear them sometimes, you know, from my friends or people I work with. And there's questions about who do you want to amplify and who do you not? And, you know, that's there's always been, I think, a, a, a tough set of questions around that. But the, you know, so to your question about what is what effect is called culture having, at least in the part of this that I can see, not a very big one. Yeah. And I think sometimes people sort of extrapolate a little bit too much from the relatively small population that's driving the conversation on Twitter and how ordinary people are talking about politics. So I think that's important to keep in mind. 
And so I mean, you tell me, right? Like this is a this is a conversational space that um, you know, obviously, you think about. Like, what? It, tell me what you think is the highest profile effect college culture has had on something. Well, I think fr- from my perspective, I hear it a lot from conservatives. Conservatives who come to our workshops. This has become a big point of contention on the right. They mention college campuses, and then they mention the New York Times, and I think a lot of that comes from this caricaturing. And I also think people have been increasingly absorbing content from the intellectual dark web, where this has become a major talking point. And so, I don't know. I mean, I think it's hard to judge objectively, but I've really been surprised when I hear how much it comes up from conservatives. And so I wonder, are they just, you know, getting this from their echo chamber and it's not really based on fact? Or are they really picking this up in their personal life? And I think it might be a little bit of both. I, I tend to think it's a little bit of both, but I, I also tend to think it's a lot of um, weaponization of a certain kind of tendency that is not that powerful by people who are quite powerful. Like something I would say about the intellectual dark web folks is that almost nobody does more college tour speaking than them. Right. <laughs> like right. I certainly don't. Like I don't have the time to do that many live shows and like they're making good money at it. Definitely. And yet nobody is more intense about the idea that there is some like shutdown of all dissent and discourse on campus, uh, sometimes in them. And, you know, and I go and I look online sometimes and I'll just get served up in my YouTube recommended algorithm, like Ben Shapiro, like destroys college kid for some yeah. reason, you know, or, you know, Ruben report college something. And one, I'm always like, why are, why are they getting fights with college kids like this? But two, they're clearly getting invited to colleges. And so I, I don't want to pick on them because, as you say, like you're saying people get this in a secondhand way from them. And I think they may have more nuanced um, positions on it than, than, than comes through in this uh, like game of telephone that we're having right here. But I do just I think that there is a very deep desire to be seen as on the side of free speech and debate right. and discourse when like all your enemies are trying to shut it down. Because that when your positions are not that strong, that is a very strong position. Right. Like I'm not defending X. I'm defending my right to say X is like sweet because like who's right. going to really attack your right to say X. I think it's always worth being pretty careful about what's happening there. Um, you know, are there some college kids who go too far in their activism? Of course. Are they as important as the people we're talking about? Are they as platformed as the people we're talking about who are also like in many cases, you know, giving a lot of attention to, um, you know, pretty, you know, uh, there's a lot of grotesque stuff on YouTube. Yes. And I think its actual effect on the world is a whole lot worse than some college kids complaining about its effect on the world. Yeah, I think the YouTube phenomenon in particular is fascinating. I listened to your conversation with ContraPoints, which took me down a video rabbit hole, which yeah, is super fast. Her videos are amazing. Amazing. I mean, I used to do theater in high school, so just from an aesthetic perspective, I was super impressed. And it it is a bit ironic because... You know, you often hear uh, people on the right talk about this victim narrative that they say, you know, leftists are adopting. But there's also a lot of, you know, victimization that you hear on the right from the president through the intellectual dark web. Oh, God. Well, put it, putting aside the intellectual dark web for a sec, because I don't want to I don't want to pick on them. Um, something you're making me think about goes back to your question about do the left and the right have distinct ways of expressing polarization? Mm. And one thing that I think is true is that there is a tendency on both sides to adopt a a victimized and powerless narrative. 
And the way that it gets adopted on the left is that the political conversation has been bought and paid for, that the only people with power are the people with money, Mm. that they control the media organizations, that they buy all the politicians, that they set the terms of the debate. And of course, there's some truth to the fact that people with money have an outsized voice in in American politics, but it can be taken often by people who have plenty of power as a way of explaining away outcomes that are actually not about money, but about the unpopularity of their own ideas. Sometimes I'll hear people on the left complain that this or that isn't happening because of money, because of, you know, the millionaires and the billionaires and the corporations. And knowing the issue, that's not true. It's not happening because people don't agree with them. It's not happening because people don't want to give them or the government that power. And so I think that's something you'll see on the left. And I think the reverse version of it on the right is that they have a view and that view is getting criticized. It is an unpopular view. And what they are saying is that they are being like, like they're being not, they're not allowed to speak, right? That somebody is impinging on their free speech, that they're being shut down, they're being canceled, called out, whatever it might be. When no, it's just like they actually haven't made the case and they're facing blowback um, or they're facing resistance. And like, that's just part of democratic politics. Right. I think it's really important to be careful, uh, no matter what side you're on, on when what you're feeling, whether you're a public figure or somebody listening to public figures, when what you're finding is resistance, it's the give and take in conflict, which often feels really bad as a person. It's a give and take in conflict of politics, or you're actually dealing with some kind of external constraint on your range of free political action that needs to be dealt with. And so I do think this is a tendency on the left and the right. I think on the left, it, it manifests through an anger at people with economic power. And on the right, it manifests at an anger with, uh, against people with cultural power. And in both cases, I tend to think that um, it's often a way of creating a victimization narrative so people don't have to deal with the unpopularity of their own ideas or really the hard work of persuading people who find their ideas dangerous or risky or just distasteful. And do you think there's an imbalance in terms of cultural exposure to the other side? Because, I mean, if you're a liberal in New York and L.A., it's very easy to go months and months without having a conversation with someone who voted for Trump if you don't want to. It's easy to sort of shut yourself off from conservative culture. Whereas if you're in middle America and, you know, you're watching TV shows and there's all the late night hosts are ragging on Trump. Do you, how, how do you think that imbalance plays out? Do you think there's validity that, to that idea? So I think you want to cut those in different in different ways. There's a real difference between the kind of exposure that comes from talking to people who don't agree with you mm-hmm. and the kind of exposure that comes from absorbing culture that doesn't agree with you. So in terms of whether liberals or conservatives are more likely to know people who voted for you know, Donald Trump or, or if you're a, a conservative for Hillary Clinton, I don't know the answer to that. My instinct is it given that liberals are more tightly packed in quite diverse cities and conservatives are um, more um, are, are in areas that are a lot uh, themselves redder, right? They, they have a sparser, but, but more politically monochromatic uh, uh, approach to this, which is why they do so much better in part in the Senate and in the house. I would be interested to see which side is likelier to, to know people on the, on the other side of the divide. I don't know the answer to it offhand. Um, I suspect it's probably not that different um, on the two sides. In, but your, your second question is well taken, which is, you know, because there is a bias in um, certainly cultural production, 
are conservatives operating in an environment where they are consistently being confronted with more political um, tension than right. liberals who can tune in to The Daily Show or tune in to Stephen Colbert? Um, that's interesting. I don't, in general, my reading of the political polarization literature is what that would create as a backlash effect. Far from being a thing that would open up your mind, if you're going on and seeing people you like mock, it's going to make you much, it's going to firm you up in your own opinions. Totally. So it's probably not a healthy thing for either side, but I'm certainly open to the idea that there's an imbalance in that one. I think that is, I think that is plausible. And I do think I've seen at least some research suggesting that people on the right are more likely to read a diverse set of media sources than people on the left, even as some of that research also shows that they're less likely to change their mind when they read those resources than people on the left are. Right. And I know you said you don't want to talk or harp too much on the intellectual dark web, but I do want to ask, you know, you had that tangle with Sam Harris, which I think touched a lot of these issues. I'm just curious about sort of what you learned from that experience, because I think it was interesting for a lot of people who listen to you and who listen to Sam Harris, but I'm not sure if there was really a resolution. So I'm just wondering how you felt about that conversation and what you feel like you learned from that whole tangle, I guess you could say. I learned a lot from that conversation, so I felt good about it. <laughs> um, I what do I what did I think about it that is useful for folks? So one, I don't think debates like that tend to have resolution, hmm. right? The question is, are you hearing people's viewpoints in a way that is helping you to better understand them? Um, most debates do not end with somebody or the others saying, "Like you're right, like you got higher me. taxes on rich people are good," um, <laughs> and like that's okay. You know, it is okay for people to have disagreement. Um, you know, as I try to always take things to say with him, there are a lot of things that Sam and I don't disagree on. In fact, I think we probably have similarly idiosyncratic interests on a lot of things. His views on a suite of issues around race and identity, I think, are are not great. But his views on meditation and other things are totally fine with me. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, and I have AI, his meditation app. On AI um, and consciousness and whatever. So it's like not the end of the world to have a disagreement with someone. The thing that was helpful to me in that debate was, one, I got a much better sense of what somebody like him means when he's talking about identity politics. Hmm. So that was really helpful for me. He was He uses identity politics as a way of ruling people out of the debate. Identity politics isn't something that everybody's doing and is a way of understanding a, mo a, a core motivator of political action. Identity politics for Sam, and he's been pretty explicit about this, is a thing other dishonest people are doing. And if people are engaging in identity politics, as he says, someone like Tanasi Coates is or I am, then they've left honesty behind. And he mm. like, doesn't have to listen to them as a fair, uh, as a fair participant in the debate. One of my points to Sam is that I think his politics are incredibly motivated by identity. I think it's a huge blind spot for him. Um, I don't think it makes him dishonest. I don't think it makes anybody dishonest. I think people are motivated by the experiences they've had and the groups they care about. When you are part of the IDW, when you've got a, a clubhouse name and t-shirts and the whole thing, like that's an identity too, <laughs> in, in the most obvious specific way, right? I mean, you're literally building an identity there out of nothing. Um, the other thing I think is interesting about the IDW in general is that it is something that I think we're seeing a lot more of in politics and that in a very different way, and I don't want to connect these two um, groups, but but they represent related trends in American life. In a, as, sorry, let me say that again. The other thing I think is interesting about the IDW as a group is it represents something I think we're seeing more of in American life. Trump represents this in a different way, although, of course, a lot of the people in the IDW don't like him, which is in different eras in American politics, different issues are the core cut between the coalitions. 
So you have periods when the political parties and the political coalitions are really fighting about economics, right? Really like in Washington and you've worked in Washington, like if you said in Washington, like, how do you know somebody's on the left or the right? Like the answer is probably, what do they think about raising taxes? Like, do they think raising taxes on rich people is a great idea? They're on the left. Do they think it's a terrible idea? They're on the right. It's a pretty good cut in Washington of which side you're on. Right. Um, in a lot of the country now, and the IDW is part of this, that doesn't tell you anything at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, this has long been true, right? If you poll Republicans, they don't care about taxes. In fact, a majority of, of Republicans will say it's fine to raise taxes on rich people. What you are seeing is a very deep cut around a set of issues related to demographic change. Um, mm-hmm. And those are issues that include things like political correctness, the, the suite of things we, we call identity politics. The IDW is willing to accept a lot of heterodoxy on things like, you know, what do you think about Donald Trump or single payer health care? But they're not willing to accept heterodoxy on what do you think about the social justice warriors on campus? Um, and by the way, you see a lot of this on the left, too. There's room for a lot of different kinds of heterodoxy and debate and discussion. You know, I always use the example, me and Matt Iglesias are, are friends and colleagues and clearly in some kind of political coalition with each other. But I'm a vegan and he's a meat eater. So we clearly have very different views on animal rights. But we're willing to just have that disagreement. It doesn't kind of kick us out of coalition together. Um, on the left, though, I think there it is okay to have a lot of different views on certain issues. But for instance, it's very hard to be in the Democratic Party or in the Blue Coalition and be pro-life. Right. Right. If you are, if you think the Alabama abortion law is a good idea, like you are probably not on the left anymore. Um, and similarly, there's a lot of things around race and transgender issues that are, and, and you can come up with a, a bunch more of these that are becoming very deep cuts um, on, on the left, you can compromise on things like a healthcare bill. You can't compromise on some of those core social justice, civil rights issues. So to me, the thing you're, th- so to me, the thing you're seeing with the IDW, with some of the ways the left is changing, the YouTube left is a, is an interesting example of this, is that there is a reorientation in terms of what the two mega ideologies or mega political identities are fighting over. Um, Donald Trump is another example of this. I bring him up because I think it's interesting. He runs for president de-emphasizing traditional Republican ideas on economics. He says, I'm not going to cut Medicare, not going to cut Social Security, not going to cut Medicaid. I think I should raise taxes on people like me. Now, he's lying, and he doesn't do that, and he doesn't follow through on those promises. But what he says is that we should be on the right, a more populist party, but with an incredibly strong view about immigrants, about um, all kinds of things related to demographic change, right? Like we should not have a country diversifying in this way um, about people coming into this country, about refugees. So Donald Trump is also somebody who's willing to accept a fair amount, or at least says he's willing to accept a fair amount of openness on certain kinds of economic issues, so long as there is a fundamental closing of ranks around these national identity issues. And that is just, I think, what our politics is going to look like for the next 15, 20, 30 years. We're a country that is becoming um, majority minority in terms of its racial composition. We're a country where the people who do not claim a religious affiliation are going to pass any individual religious affiliation as the largest group. We're a country that is racing towards having the single largest percentage in our history be foreign-born residents that America's ever had. That's a country under a huge amount of demographic pressure. And fundamentally, the cleavage in American politics is becoming, how do you feel about that and the the changes in politics and power that that sets off? Um, are you comfortable with it, optimistic about it, 
or are you uncomfortable with it and a little bit pessimistic about it? And in different ways, you're seeing the political coalitions change to front load that disagreement as opposed to the ones that they've been built around for the last 20 or 30 or 40 years. Right. Well, so keeping that shift in mind, what do you think are the values that can connect Americans across this divide? And how can we draw those out and articulate it as part of this aspirational depolarization movement? I am. I think it's really hard. I do not. I have not ever heard. And I've been looking because I'm writing a book on this stuff, a agenda for depolarization that I think is plausible. I do not think we are going to depolarize. I think, in fact, we're going to polarize even more for a while. And I think that may even be okay. Um, One thing I'll say about depolarization, right, and I think it's something that groups like Better Angels need to confront a little bit more. The way depolarization tends to work in political societies, the way depolarization tends to work in in democratic political societies is through suppression. Um, So if you look at mid-century, mid-20th century American political life, we are very depolarized compared to any other period in our history. We have liberal Republicans and we have conservative Democrats. And how is that happening? Well, it's happening because the Democratic Party has in its center the conservative Dixiecrat movement. Right. Um, So it has an incredibly racist Southern bloc, um, which keeps the Democratic Party from becoming a left party. Um, and similarly, the Republican Party, um, because of this, has a quite liberal northern bloc, which keeps it from becoming an exclusively conservative party. And as the way this depolarized, um, ideologically heterodox set of coalitions is sustained, is that racial conflict is suppressed in politics. So, for instance, the filibuster, it's used all the time now for everything. But mid-century, it's used for almost nothing except to stop civil rights bills. It is used to stop anti-lynching bills. It's used to stop civil rights laws. It's used to suppress debate about Mm -hmm. race. And it's only when that blockage is broken through that America begins to go through its run-up to polarization that we're all living through right now. So one of the the hard things is, is that with polarization, you're often dealing with a choice between confronting issues that divide your society or suppressing them. And it can be less polarizing, quote-unquote, to suppress them, um, but it also could be more unjust. Um, or it requires keeping some people locked out of the political system altogether. And so this is just a tough tension. It's very hard to have some of these core issues emerge in the political system without them driving a lot of polarization. But on the other hand, what ends up happening in order to keep that from, from being the case can be something that, uh, that, that is also comes with a real cost, not just in politics, but in justice. Right. Well, I think I'm also asking about this idea of effective polarization. So the belief that my political opponent is not just wrong, but is fundamentally evil, you know, sort of that continuum from hatred and disdain, then moving toward pity, then moving toward tolerance, and then moving for maybe even basic respect and even admiration for some of their ideas if you disagree with it. How do you see that in the context? Because that's sort of a separate issue, right, than this more macro coalitional polarization. No, and see, I don't think it's a separate issue. That's the problem. You don't think it's separate um, at all? I wish it. I, I, let, me, let me put this in two – let me cut this in two ways. Obviously, that's good. And certainly, as somebody who thinks a lot about politics and runs an interview show, and like that is the attitude I try to take. I try to bring on a lot of people on the right who I respect. I made a point, even when I talked about Sam, who I've had difficult interactions with, saying, you know, look, there are other things about that guy that are good. Like, he's not all one thing. None of us are. It's easy for me to say, and it's part of my work to do it. And it's something that I try to cultivate in myself. So I'm not telling you that it can't be done. I know a lot of people who do this really well. In general, though, 
the more you increase the stakes of American politics or of any country's politics, the harder it is for most people to see it that way, in part because seeing it that way can be a little bit of a luxury. Right. So if you are in Alabama and you are a woman who might someday need to access an abortion, it's all well and good to say, I really respect the pro-life position. It's based on strong values and it comes from a, a place of deep sincerity. But also they might make you carry um, a, ch- a child that is life-threatening for you um, or simply that is um, – they might make you carry a child to term that you don't want to have to carry, or, you know, you can reverse that to the pro-life position if, if, if you prefer to look at it from that angle. And this comes up again and again and again and again. And so one of the difficulties um, I, I see in politics is that the more you increase the actual stakes of the, the issues under debate, the harder it is for people to see the other side as just like a bunch of good people who are differently motivated than they are. The more they tend to see them as evil, the more angry they are at them, the more fearful they are towards them. And that's a really hard thing to stop. My point here is not that it isn't better to look at it the other way. My point here is that from my study of this, those two things go hand in hand, that the run-up in polarization is not some, let me say this last sentence slightly differently, because this is actually tricky. People often want to cut polarization into its different dimensions. There's ideological polarization. That's about what you're talking about is something called effective polarization, A-F-F-E-C-T-A-I-V. Right. It's like how you feel an affect towards people. Um, there's also party polarization, which can be separate from ideology. It can just be about how much the two coalitions vote with each other. There can be an idea that you can separate all these out. In my view, it's really quite hard to separate them out. As one or two of them run up, the other is going to run up as well because you feel more angry and fearful towards people who pose more of a threat to the way you live your life. And so if one of these things is going up, it tends to carry the other ones with it. And it tends to create opportunities for political entrepreneurs like Donald Trump or um, media outlets that want to whip up that kind of polarization. So this is why I'm really concerned about these issues. I'm not here celebrating these trends. I think they're a real problem. In fact, I think they're our most fundamental political challenge in the coming years. But it's in part because of that that I want to be very clear about how difficult they are to solve. Um, there isn't some way to easily cut the anger and heat and outrage people feel in politics from the stakes itself of politics. Right. Well, so do you do you believe that there's potential to cultivate, I guess how Arthur Brooks describes it as love thy enemies. And it's something that MLK talked about a lot, too, which is, you know, wishing goodwill even or perhaps especially toward those who would do you harm. Do you think that well, A, what, how do you assess the value of that proposition as a way to live your life? Do you think it just places too much of a burden on people who are oppressed? And B, do you think there's potential to cultivate that and shift norms starting on a person-to-person level with the expectations that that could eventually change behavior at the political level? So one, so Arthur's a good friend of mine um, and is somebody whose approach to politics I really respect and admire. And so in terms of that love thy enemies approach, it's great. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a wonderful outlook to have. Uh, my criticism is that, well, let me say it two ways. One is that I think that Brooks was often a lot harsher um, earlier when he was talking about sort of Obama and the free enterprise system, for instance. So, I mean, you were around in some of those periods, Kerry. Right. So um, one of the things there is it can be, it tends to be easier as people get further from the political center for them to take a more elevated view. 
And something for Arthur that is true is he's become a man really without a party. And I'm not saying he would not self-describe as Republican. I, I actually don't know how he thinks about it these days, but he's clearly not like Donald Trump. And he's clearly more a kind of Republican who is out of favor than a, than a kind of Republican who is in favor. And so I think he's been able to see this a little bit differently. Um, the other issue with love thy enemy politics is I don't want to say that it's too much of a burden just on the oppressed. I think it's a burden on everybody, but more to the point, I don't really think that's where the hard question is. Like, what does it really matter if you had Mitch McConnell on the show and he told you that like, in fact, he actually does love his enemy. Like he thinks that, uh, that Harry Reid and Chuck Schumer and, and Merrick, like what if, what if Mitch McConnell came and said to you, I think Merrick Garland's great. I think he's a wonderful guy. Like I give him all the love in the world. I thank him for his service to the country. I just was under no circumstances, no matter what, ever going to give that guy a hearing because I believe the court will be better off with a conservative majority. The thing here is that the, the expressions of politics people are having are coming from the way politics is being played. And the issue with Merrick Garland and Mitch McConnell, this is something I say to people on the left all the time. People want to say that Mitch McConnell like, did something completely out of the boundaries of American politics. Well, did he? Or did he do exactly what his people voted him into office to do? Right. And he had the votes to do it. He didn't actually break a rule. Like, why should he have done anything different than what he did? And so the hard thing about politics right now, um, and this is where things get, I think, very tricky, is when the stakes are very high, it's very hard for members of either side to justify to themselves or to their constituents why they're not going all the way, why they're not using every power they have to get their preferred outcome. And if they do that, then the other side is going to feel run over. They're going to feel like they were treated unfairly. Right. Um, and then you have this kind of escalation of feeling. And that is what ends up being the problem for love by enemy politics. It's not that people don't want to do it. It's that they don't want to do it after they feel the other side has screwed them over. And right. the other side may have screwed them over, not because they didn't love them, but just because they thought the underlying issue itself was important. And like, that's why it ends up being so hard to change because like, that is the thing. That is, that is like the decision point where people aren't really acting based on hatred of the other side. They're acting because they have a vision of a good society and what is decent and just and moral, and they feel like duty bound to pursue it. Right. No, I think your pessimism is certainly well taken when it comes to political leaders and members of Congress. But our hope is that through working with ordinary people and building a grassroots movement, we can begin to change norms. And I think... I mean, obviously, the Me Too movement is completely different. But if you think about the power of a, a norm shifting movement to change behavior, I think that sort of demonstrates the power of changing what's acceptable and changing how people to re relate to one another. And so I think in our case, exposure breeds empathy and that can change the conversation. And it's our hope that eventually we can start to challenge our political leaders to move toward depolarization but it's certainly uh, a tall mountain to climb. Yeah, look, I have enormous respect for what you guys are doing Better Angels, and I, I, I deeply hope it works. Um, my estimation of what you're doing is, like in the literature, called intergroup contact theory. Right. Right, that's fundamentally the, the, the approach you're taking. It's a good theory, right? It is one of the very few things we know that will, actu that will actually and actively and reliably reduce polarization in groups of people. 
right? If you set up the right way for them to work together towards an outcome, like it, you can actually bring down the temperature. Um, hell, I see it all the time in my podcast. I'll take somebody I'm fighting with on Twitter and then invite them on and we have a much nicer conversation. <laughs> yeah. The issue is, does that scale? Mm-hmm. One of the things about Me Too, which I don't love as an, as an analogy for this, but, but for what it's worth is it's scaled. Right. Right. It was something, it wasn't that what had to happen is like everybody participating in it had to sit in a room with like other, like in, in some kind of different way and have a, and have a struggle session towards coming out to the other side of being a, a, a less polarized person. Me too. It's like, a, it's a Twitter hashtag, right? And it began to be a point of organizing and, 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 and the thing that makes me skeptical about intergroup contact approaches to, to reducing polarization is simply whether or not they scale and then whether or not they're a motivator of action. Um, so one, are you able to reach enough people in that kind of project? And then two, even if you have reached them, does reaching them in that way make them participate more in politics? Um, does it make them into a movement or does it actually calm them down? Does it, does it depolarize them a little bit? There's a, a book I've been um, reading on and off recently, and I'm sorry, cause I'm not going to remember the name of it from memory, but it's a book about deliberation and it's a political science book about deliberation. And what it shows is that there is a, a kind of participation paradox around deliberation. The more you get people to deliberate on political issues, see all sides, the less motivated they become to participate. Because the thing that motivates a lot of people to participate is seeing one side. And so a lot of the times when you get people to be in a more moderate and open-minded place, it's an emotion that comes with, with a certain level of political paralysis, not for everybody and certainly not for people who are devoting their lives to it. But in general, it's why it's very hard to build moderate, modest, temperamentally open-minded political movements. It's why political movements tend to be based on heat and fury, not um, gentleness and, 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 and approach. And so I do not want to tell you that it can't happen. And in fact, like I am thrilled that you all are out there trying. But you're hearing somebody right now who is struggling with the concluding chapter to a book about polarization and wants to be very careful not to be giving people false hope. And as I look at that research, that is the difficulty I see for it. Um, the more you kind of open people up, oftentimes the less interested they get in politics because like actually it turns out it's complicated. Both sides have some good points. You don't really want to offend anybody. And so, you know what? Maybe you'll just make your local, maybe you make your local city or, or state politics a little bit better, or you'll work or spend more time with your children. So that's a that's a tough challenge. I'd be curious to hear if you guys have thought about that or, or found ways of getting around it. But I do think that's a challenge you'll have to face. No, absolutely. And I mean, in some ways, it's like, can you get people polarized about depolarization? And yeah. I mean, I think what we've noticed is there's definitely a hunger for what we're doing, and when people get touched by it, they get energized. You know, the, the temperature goes down, but they get energized because they they see it as something positive and they gravitate toward that feeling of compassion and empathy and almost kind of civic duty and responsibility. We like to use the term patriotic empathy as this kind of rhetorical frame that can appeal to both reds and blues, because I think to reds, hearkening back to sort of these founding ideals and civic duty and to blues talking about empathy and love thy enemies, that's a way that you can sort of build that common identity. And a lot of people who come to our workshops, not everyone, but a lot of them say, you know, I like this. I want to keep doing this. And so we see the workshops not really as an end in themselves, but rather as an entree into this larger movement. So out of a workshop will oftentimes emerge a Better Angels Alliance, which is essentially a roughly even number of liberals and conservatives who continue to meet in an ongoing basis, continue to organize and start to take up issues of common concern. 
very much in a decentralized way. So we're doing a convention in a month, and I'm putting together a conversation between uh, the head of Black Lives Matter New York and a leader from the Tea Party. And the subject of the conversation is lessons for better angels from these two groups, you know, ideologically divided, who've both been very successful grassroots movements. And I think it's an interesting point because, you know, anger and fear are powerful motivators. And so I guess we're looking to, you know, figures like Gandhi and figures like MLK, who were able to remain passionate advocates for what they believed in, but also bring people together around a spirit of goodwill and compassion and ultimately common humanity. I think that there is a problem the modern problem with sanitizing the fights that MLK and Gandhi and, and people in that era were part of. Mm -hmm. And there was a, there was a deep anger in those fights and there was a fury and there was a willingness to call people out. I mean, go read the letter from Birmingham jail, right? That is a letter. It's not, it's that, that one's not aimed at the worst of the white racists. That's aimed at moderate liberals who say, go slower, listen, like right. people don't want to move as fast as you're moving. And so you know, I don't think it's impossible to imagine um, a political movement based on some level of healing. And in fact, I think that its most uh, likely vehicle is going to be a Democratic presidential candidate. I think that if somebody came up right now, if Barack Obama could run like his first campaign in 2020, I think he'd clean up. Right. I think there's a deep hunger to hear this. The question is, um, out of that moment, can you sustain that approach to politics or does it all kind of like snap back to its thing? To me, one of the really depressing facts of modern American politics is that the Obama experience ends in Donald Trump, mm. right? And, and, and like no story is truly finished. So I don't mean that it, it ends in a terminal way, but it, it leads to Donald Trump. I mean, you worked for Barack Obama. And I think that's a guy who came into politics with first a level of political and rhetorical talent that probably no politician for a generation will be able to match. I mean, he was truly a, a unique talent. But believes in a deep way, uh, uh, believes in depolarization, believes totally. in unites us and divides us. I mean, I, I had, I'm somebody who reported on Obama for years and I had this discussion with him, right? In, in interviews, you can go look at the Vox interview. We actually speak about this in, in, in our first, um, uh, our first conversation for Vox. And as much as he tried, like Barack Obama himself proved to be a polarizing figure, right? The fact that he proved polarizing is very, very depressing to me. I certainly agree. Right? I mean, he was the Barack ultimate Obama better angel. The Tea Party is very depressing to me. Now, it's also very obvious in a sense. Here you have the first African-American president and, oh, hey, what do you get? A white backlash movement. Like that is what American politics has always looked like. But the Obama administration really found it hard to sustain a political movement around those sort of early Obama ideals. And by the end, by the second term, it was much more. And if you talk to them, they talked about this pretty openly. It was like, okay, we can't work with Republicans. Like we get what we can get done on our own, you know, and we recognize like we have to roll them over. We're not going to have a great grand bargain with, J with John Boehner or whatever it might be. And so I think there's a lot of lessons in that about how difficult polarization is to change. I fear that the way we're going to see polarization change in this country is going to be external. That if there's going to be something that breaks our polarization, our red-blue polarization, it won't be that somebody came up with a frame about national identity. It will be that instead of the other becoming us, right, the other becoming red if you're blue and blue if you're red, it becomes China. Right, a common threat. Mm -hmm. a, a common external threat. And that to me would be a very scary endgame here. 
Um, uh, the thing that I do think more about than I think other people is what if you assume we just are going to be polarized? What if America is just going to be polarized? It's not an unusual thing. It's how a lot of political systems are. We happen to have a political system that is uniquely bad at dealing with polarization. You need huge amounts of consensus to make it work. You have divided government as a normal matter of course, which is actually a quite unusual thing in most countries. If you have a government, by, by virtue of you having a government, you have a government that has the, the votes to govern. Um, maybe we need to think about accepting that we're going to be a polarized country, at least for now, until some of these underlying trends change or abate or our demographics settle into a different place or whatever it might be. Yeah, and but again, I come back to the the ordinary... That better. Sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say, again, I come back to the ordinary folks for whom polarization is, you know, causing all kinds of problems in families and at the workplace and people are losing friendships and thinking about can if, if we accept the premise that that is bad and that that is something that we want to fix... Is that something that we can work on while sort of accepting that at a governmental level, things will continue to be polarized and that's not necessarily as much of a problem as it as people might say it is? Yeah, I don't know about that question, to be honest with you. If you're uh, uh, regular folks um, uh, <laughs> and you're losing friendships over politics, I think that either that's something you kind of want to be doing, right? You've decided to morally it's important to you to, 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 to associate with people who you think are are doing good by your definition of it in the world, or you don't need to be losing friendships over it. I mean, I have people in my family who I disagree with profoundly politically. I'm somebody who is a reporter in Washington for a long time. I mean, a bunch of the people we've talked about in this, in this thing, like Arthur Brooks are people I disagree with profoundly politically. And I don't find it that hard to hold friendships. Um, so I certainly think that if the issue is somebody can't figure out how to hold a friendship across the political aisle, like that is something that can be taught. Like that is a, that is a totally solvable problem. I just also don't think it's a big problem. My worry is not that we are so polarized that we can't talk to each other. My worry is we're so polarized our system of government doesn't work. My worry is we're so polarized that our political elites will do anything to destroy the other side. My worry is we're so polarized that people are basically cheating to win. My worry is that polarization is making it impossible to do, forget hard political things like address climate change, easy political things like infrastructure. My worries about polarization are much more macro than that. I don't think the the individual level is a huge is a huge lift here, and I think for most people it's not a central problem. But I think that for a lot of people, including those regular people, a broken political system is a terrible problem for them, mm-hmm. and it'll be a terrible problem for their children. And we got to figure out a fix to that. I totally agree. Although I will say that I think the just the vitriol and the rancor that is fueled by polarization, I think is affecting people's mental health. I think it's causing depression, anxiety, loneliness, isolation, paired with this larger breakdown in community. And so I think groups like Better Angels through, you know, what's a approach to political polarization can tackle some of these larger issues. I mean, I even, I even spoke to a gastroenterologist recently who was saying that more and more of her patients who come in uh, with anxiety, stomach pain are talking about politics yeah, but aren't they talking about being worried about Donald Trump or vice versa, not that they can't talk to their, I don't know, their baker or neighbor? I mean, I just wonder if I, I've heard this thing about politics leading to anxiety, and frankly, I feel it. I feel very anxious about American <laughs> politics, but I don't think when that's happening, what tends to be happening is that people are falling out with their uncle. I think that people are very worried about the state of the country. 
Um, again, I'm not saying, look, it's a big country and all kinds of things are happening and totally all over politics. And I've had, you know, disagreements with people like I'm very sympathetic to it. I don't want to, I never want to tell you that something isn't happening, but in terms of what's leading to a, like a large scale trend there, I've read those same articles that I think you're talking about. And it's always psychologists saying that my patients are coming in and talking about Donald Trump or that we've done reporting at box. I mean, there are kids going to school, you know, kids whose parents are immigrants right? who are terrified because they think their parents are going to be deported. Um, so yeah, I mean, maybe polarization is doing that, but it, it's the, it's the kind of polarization is leading to real stakes in their lives. I would be very, this is my, this is my one push towards what I've heard from you here today. I'd be very careful about separating out the effects of polarization and the stakes leading to polarization. Mm-hmm. I don't really know that you can fix one without the other. I don't want to say that you never can, but you know, I would take seriously that maybe people are right about what they're feeling. Mm-hmm. That the really hard problem we're facing is not that people are wrong about the divisions in this country, but that they're right about them and that the stakes of them are getting much higher. I mean, we are really living at a moment and whatever side of this you can be on, I think this will apply to you. In the next five years, it is totally plausible the Supreme Court will overturn Roe v. Wade. And if that happens in some, in 20 some or 30 some states, a series of bills that have been passed over the past decade or two decades are going to go into effect, functionally criminalizing abortion. And you may see that as one of the great goods of human existence or one of the most terrifying things to happen in modern America. Um, similarly, we almost repealed the Affordable Care Act and we did gut important parts of it. Like these things are the, the fears people have about politics, the rancor. I think a lot of it is escalated by social media. I think mm. a lot of it is escalated by cable news. I think a lot of it is um, stuff that people don't really need to be think about or that they're getting worked up about for no reason. I think that like the media has things to answer for in say freaking out about the Covington high school teenagers and getting everybody emotionally worked up over that for a weekend. Like there was no reason anybody should have cared right. no matter what you think happened there. But that said, like the stakes of this are really big. And one reason people are upset is that they're upset about them. And they have good reason to be. And it's going to be hard to de-escalate until we can find a way to de-escalate those stakes. You know, I do think that some of this, it follows whether it drove the reality of our political stakes or it followed the reality of our political stakes is, I think, an interesting question. But one way or another, I'm not sure there's going to be a solution to one without there being more of a solution to the other. 